Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse 46, our passage for this morning. And as we uh, look at this final section of Luke chapter 6, we are coming to the portion uh, that's kind of the end, the summary of uh, Jesus's uh, sermon on the Mount here in Luke. Uh, of course, as we said previously, that this opens up uh, as Jesus is gathering his disciples to himself, the 12 disciples uh, who he has just selected from a larger group as they were up on, um, as they were like with the larger group of people, uh, they went up onto a mountain, they came down uh, and gathered a great multitude as the disciples were there and uh, many scribes and Pharisees and uh, people who had been following him for some time were gathering to him. And as he has this large group of people, as he has selected uh, these disciples to follow him, these first 12 apostles, he now begins to unpack uh, what it means to be a follower of Jesus, to be a disciple. He begins to explain that this is, in fact, different than what they have been doing thus far. It does not uh, nullify the laws that they have been following thus far, but Jesus reorients the law and reorients uh, many of the things that they are assuming around himself. He says that these things are actually about me. These are the ways that you ought to live. And he starts by giving this list of beatitudes. He, uh, he unpacks uh, that the type of kingdom that is coming, that is his kingdom, is a bit of an upside down kingdom. It's one where uh, there are those who are poor, those who are destitute, those who are hungry. He says that you will be filled. You will not lack. You will have all that you need. And then he contrasts that with woes to those who believe that they already have what they need in this life. Uh, they are well off. They have provided for themselves. They are not worried about safety or security. And he says that you will be the ones, if you are trusting in riches, that you will be the ones who will be ultimately hungry and despondent, that you will be weeping. You're trusting in the wrong things, Jesus goes on to say. And as he opens this up, he's framing that opening section around identity. And then he goes into uh, the following uh, couple uh, blocks of text where he speaks about now how that identity ought to be different. If the identity and the character of the kingdom is to be different than the character of this world, uh, the opening lines of Jesus's uh, call then is to love your enemies. A very different ethic than what we live in today. We would never say that you should love your enemies. We would say that you should defeat your enemies and take uh, every opportunity to take advantage of them and to make sure that uh, you can have victory over your enemies. But Jesus says, love your enemies. Uh, do good to those who hate you. That you should spend time in prayer for those who abuse you. That you should dedicate valuable time that you have to those who are opposing you, who are against you, who do not like you. It's a totally different ethic that he is getting to. He goes on to um, elaborate there that we should also um, not judge people in the sense of condemning them. 
right? And in the next section in verse 37, he says, judge not and you will not be judged. Of course, we elaborated um, on this a couple Sundays ago, but also at community group there. This is not speaking to that we shouldn't uh, judge what's going on in other people's lives as a matter of evaluation, but the type of judgment that Jesus is speaking of here is a judgment that's saying, uh, I'm going to be done with this person. I am cutting them off from my life. I don't want to deal with this person anymore. He's calling us to love your enemies, right? If you recall, uh, in uh, 1 Corinthians 13, the Apostle Paul defines the type of love that the believer ought to have. And one of those uh, definitions there is that love bears all things. It endures all things. This is the type of love that we ought to have for our enemies. This is the way that we ought to interact with those whom we would be tempted to judge and be like, I'm completely done with you. Jesus says that that is not an option for the believer, that we should be bearing with those who are difficult in our lives, that we should be loving them and bearing with them. We don't ever get to the point where we are canceling people out of our lives, that we are finished with them, uh, but we are still inspecting what's in their lives. We are calling people to follow Jesus. But before we get too far down that path, Jesus then steps in and he speaks to the idea of self-examination, that you ought to inspect your own life. He says that this is a key characteristic of the kingdom as he pulls out uh, these analogies of a blind man leading another blind man. He speaks then to the idea of removing things from your spiritual vision in the form of removing a log or a speck out of your own eye. How we ought to uh, clear our own vision and how we ought to be uh, uh, gentle in our treatment of others. How we help them clear their vision. And then he finishes uh, here by looking at the idea of a tree that bears fruit and being connected to a source. And the tree bearing fruit uh, being either a good tree that bears good fruit or a bad tree that bears bad fruit, uh, he says here that this is coming out of what is within the person. A good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person produces uh, uh out of his evil treasure produces evil. This comes from the inside, Jesus tells us. And so what he wraps with there in this idea of the two trees uh, is very similar to our text in the, uh, in the beginning, as he opens with, the two types of people. There are those who have the correct ethic of the kingdom, uh, those who will receive the Beatitudes, the blessings, and there are those who have built their identity around evil treasures. They will weep and howl because they believe that they have what they need already. And Jesus uh, wraps it up in our text this morning by speaking to an, another comparison, two different uh, things, two different houses that exist. And as we come to the text, I want you to see that what Jesus is getting at here is he's not so much addressing the outside of the house. Because for the, the exterior uh, may look great, much like the person who believes in this life they have what they need, they've built their house upon 
or they have, they have uh, lived their life in such a way where they have worked hard and they have riches and safety and security. They are, are putting in all the effort and it seems that they are indeed profiting. That person may be uh, doing that work. Another person who uh, may be doing a similar work, but they are operating from a position of uh, faithful stewardship over their uh, minuscule amount that God has entrusted to them, and they are uh, having some sort of uh, return on their investment. We have two trees that both are uh, trees that are connected to a source, and they are both bearing fruit. And the fruit is only to be discovered to be bad upon tasting it, upon uh, cutting into it. But from the exterior, the two trees, they look similar. One has good fruit, one has bad fruit, but that's only discovered by getting to what is beneath the surface. In the same way, as we come to our text this morning, Jesus speaks to us about two different types of houses. He doesn't remark about the exterior of the houses because they're the same. They look the same. They appear to be uh, sufficient houses. They appear to be fine. But what Jesus is concerned with is the foundation. He's concerned with the uh, identity on which these houses are built. And he opens up this challenge uh, with these words in verse 46. He says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? He opens up with this kind of challenging phrase. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? He's putting this call out to those who are his uh, audience there. He's got this big group of people before him. He's got his recently selected 12 apostles. He's got a much wider group of people who have been following him for some time. Uh, he's gained a bit of a following. He's got the religious leaders there in his midst, the scribes and the Pharisees. He's got this big group of people before him, and he poses this question, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Now, first, among that group, there are those who will explicitly say, oh, I am a follower of Jesus. There are those who will explicitly say, I am not a follower of Jesus. The scribes and the Pharisees would be quick to say, oh, I'm not a follower of Jesus. I am a follower of the God of Israel. But there are those who will explicitly claim to be followers of Jesus. Yes, I do. I am a follower of Jesus. As they make this confession of Lord, Lord, Jesus deals with those who are claiming that they are following him. This is a confession of authority. Jesus says, some of you are talking the talk. You're saying that I am your Lord. That word there, it means that, that, uh, that he is a master, that he is ruling over one's life. He has complete authority. It means that we belong to him. And that we're obligated, if you're calling him Lord, Lord, to do whatever he says. But then he says, some of you call me Lord, Lord, but you don't obey what I tell you to do. You don't listen. And what he's pointing out here is the contradiction. 
that one might say, oh, I call him Lord, but you don't listen to his voice. You don't follow what he's telling you to do. What Jesus is getting at here for those who are his followers is that it is not enough to confess that he is your Lord. It's not enough to just say, oh, I am a follower of Jesus. I'm a Christian. I'm a disciple of Christ. I go to church. He says, that's not enough. That's not what we're looking for. That's not what Jesus being Lord means. When you call him Lord, you are exercising a a confession of submission and yielding to his rule over your life. If he is to be Lord, he has to be able to direct you and you have to be able to follow. To come under his authority. To follow where he leads. To have Jesus interrupt you at your place of work and say, Why don't we go fishing right after you're just like, I just spent all night fishing. Why in the world would I want to do that again? There's nothing out there. And what the disciples say in that moment, before they're his disciples, is they say, we were just out there working hard, but if you want to do it, let's go. They explicitly say, it doesn't make any sense to us to do it, but let's go. We don't see why this is going to be useful or helpful but let's go. They're not guaranteed a return. All they're guaranteed is that they are going to do what Jesus says. They don't know that they're going to get anything out of it. And even if they don't get anything out of it, they should still be listening if he is Lord. But yet they still, they launch out into the deep, they let down their nets, and Jesus does his work. This is a small demonstration, a small example of what it looks like to be under the lordship of Christ. Even when it doesn't make sense to say, all right, like, let's go. If this is where Jesus is leading us, this doesn't make any sense, but it doesn't have to make sense to me because I'm not the one in charge. It doesn't make any sense to do this. You know what doesn't make sense? For the God of the universe to say, Eh, there's people that I created who keep blowing it and who hate me. I'm going to come and save them. That doesn't make sense. That doesn't make any sense. So if he would still do that for us, if he would demonstrate his love towards us while we were still sinners, that he would die for us, wouldn't it make more sense for us to just obey him in the slightest when he's already demonstrated that love? When he's already proven to us that he cares so deeply for us? To follow Jesus is to confess him as Lord, and then to follow up and to obey. To demonstrate this in true faith, in true obedience. In John chapter 14, verse 15, Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. So, if you love him... You will keep his commandments. Okay, but, but I can't keep his commandments. There's a lot of them. There's a lot of commandments. Well, if you love him, you're going to want to be with him. And if you're going to be with him, you're going to find out what all of his commandments are, and you'll have no problem learning what they all are because you're going to be with him. 
The only reason that that's going to be a problem is if you don't really love him because you don't really want to be with him, then the commandments feel like a lot of commandments because you don't really want to learn them all. But you easily learn those things that uh, are given to you by those who you are with a lot of time. Like you spend a lot of time with those people, you're going to get what you need from them to understand how you could accommodate and love and serve that person. If you love Jesus, if you're with him, you're going to understand what he wants you to do. You're going to learn his commandments. It's not going to be difficult because you're going to him each day. You're spending time with him throughout the day. You're understanding what does his word say? How is his Holy Spirit leading me? You're not seeking to check boxes. You're continuing on to pursue him daily. But what Jesus says here in these challenging words is, that we don't really love him and we don't really believe in him if we don't do what he says. If you're not listening, if you're confessing him as Lord, Lord, but you're not listening, he's saying, you don't really love me. It's meaningless to confess him as Lord if you're not going to obey him. Now, all the disciples here are listening. Not just the 12 apostles, but they're challenged directly by Jesus to hear these difficult words. He is speaking this to a large group of people so that they may understand uh, in this particular moment that they need to uh, connect to Jesus. That they need to be someone who uh, are able to receive the words that he is speaking if they are to be his followers. You cannot just be a follower of Jesus and say, I am a Christian, if you are not willing to obey him. Uh, he, he gives now a, an example. In verse 47, he says this, Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them I will show you what he is like. Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He communicates this. Here's an example now of people who come to him. Everyone who comes to me. And I want you to see this, that he welcomes all people to come to him. He wants to know people. Jesus loves everybody. And he wants them to come in and meet him and know him. And so he says, if you come to me, if you want to know me, I am willing to know you. And now he says, here's what it looks like. You've got to hear my words. And then you also have to do these things. People come to Jesus for various reasons. But he says that the only way to come to him is to hear his words and do them. You can't come on your own terms and say, well, I'm going to come to Jesus for this or for that. This group of people that Jesus is speaking to in the text, they've come to him for all sorts of things. Some of them, he remember in the earlier uh, sections, he's like making food for people. He's providing various uh, like uh, healings. He heals Peter's mother-in-law. All these sorts of things happen. 
by being near to Jesus, by being in the vicinity. But Jesus says now, if you're going to be with me, if you're going to follow me, you can't just come and say, I'm going to take stuff from you. You have got to hear his words and also do them. And so to help his hearers understand this important truth, he gives uh, the story of these two different builders, two different buildings that he lays out. The first one in verse 48 is described as a well-built house. Let's roll in from verse 47. He says, Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. Now, Luke mentions to us here that the foundation is being laid, it's being put down for a well-constructed house. The first example that Jesus gives here of one who hears and listens, uh, hears his words, who listens to his words, who then goes and does and follows, uh, puts the words into action, who follows his words, who obeys him, is described as being one who builds a house, who digs deep and lays a foundation on the rock. As someone who, be, who would be looking to, to build a house, if you've ever undertaken any type of project, basically what, what you're trying to do when you undertake any type of project is you're kind of at the intersection of kind of three things. The quality the speed, and the cost. Those are the three things that you're kind of dealing with here. The quality, the speed, and the cost. How much is this going to cost? How fast can I do this? And uh, how, how good of quality is it going to be? And the reality is, is that uh, you can only choose two of those things. If you're going to do something uh, inexpensively, uh, and you're going to do it very quickly, then it's not going to be very good, right? You can do it uh, a very uh, high-quality project. You can put something together that's really nice, uh, and you can do it very quickly, but it's going to be very expensive. You, you only get the opportunity to pick two of these three things. And what Jesus says here is that the most important thing that you do is that you work for quality. You work for a solid foundation. He says the builder is digging through the topsoil. He's going down, pulling back the earth to reveal the solid bedrock, the foundation. He's taking time to do it right because it's slow work. Trying to dig a hole is going to take a long time. Trying to dig a hole that's going to support the foundation of a house is going to take a really long time. Going that deep. It's slow work because it's difficult work. It's very hard. It takes intention. You have to be focused. You have to be paying attention. You've got to be all in on it. It requires uh, 
self-examination. As you're doing your work, you've got to be excavating out the silts and peat. You've got to be pulling out clay and, and, and removing this to get to the bedrock so that you are finally at the solid portion. You've got to be inspecting as you go to remove those things uh, that, that are going to be beneath your house so that there is nothing but solid, firm foundation there. If you have some of that leftover, uh, uh, you know, soil there, as the liquid hits it, it's going to turn to mud and it's going to have your, your, your house slip. Jesus puts together this picture of a difficult work. This is the type of, of effort that he calls us to as those who are hearers of his word and then doers of his word. You can't just be someone who's going to hear that and be like, okay, well, that sounds good. No, you've got to operate with intention. You've got to operate with focus. You've got to be someone who's taking time to do that work. It's slow. It's difficult. It's hard. It's not difficult uh, because it's hard for us to do. It's difficult because we want to go fast. It's difficult for us to do because uh, it's it's requires self-examination. We're willing to cut corners. I'm sure we can leave a little bit of that clay in there. It's fine. Just no problem. And it's like we're close enough. It's basically kind of balanced. I think we're like, we'll be fine. We're likely to cut those corners. And Jesus says, don't do it. Don't do it. Because floods are going to come and they are going to ruin your house if it's not built correctly. There is this house that's built correctly, that's been excavated, uh, the soil's been excavated out, it's been placed firmly upon this rock. And now he describes for us a familiar scene to his audience. In this particular region, storms would come through and, and a fierce rain would fall upon the mountains and this would create essentially, uh, you know, flash floods that come through and uh, would would come up over the banks of rivers and uh, winds would blow and it would come against the house. And so he describes this in verse 48. When a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and it could not shake it because it had been well built. It had been well built. The wise man is the one who comes to Jesus. He comes for salvation, knowing that he cannot rescue himself. He cannot save himself. Just like we've all come in here this morning, just like we all come every single week, making that confession that we cannot save ourselves. We're not, we're not, we don't have it together. We're not good enough. Only Jesus is good. Only Jesus is the one who saves us. The wise man is one who comes to Jesus, who hears his sayings, who hears the things that he's communicating, who hears his words, <coughs> and then who does them, who obeys him. Remember, Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. If you love me, follow me. Keep my commandments. The one who builds a solid foundation is the wise man. Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians 3. Verse 10, 
He says, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. Right? I love that. He's like, I'm trying to build. I'm trying to have skills. I'm laying a foundation, and it's enabled by God's grace. It's not my own work. It's what God has done. He's enabling me to do this. He's giving me the vision to see this. He's helping me along the way. He says, uh, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. And someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. What is the foundation that Paul has laid? He says in verse 11, For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. He says, you're going to build your life upon something. And if you don't build it upon Jesus Christ, you're starting off in a foolish way. You have to build upon the foundation that is being laid. The Lord will enable you to build. He's going to give you the skills to accomplish what you need to accomplish, where he's taking you with whatever he's given you. But it has to be built upon the foundation of Jesus. Paul elaborates in uh, Ephesians uh, chapter 2, verse 20. He says that uh, the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. That there is the cornerstone by which the rest of the foundation finds its orientation. The rest of the foundation is, uh, finds its, its connection in relation to that chief cornerstone. This is the right way to build a life. This is the right way. Because when the house is battered by the floods, by the rains, by the torrential downpour, when streams of water come pouring, the house stands firm because it is founded on the rock. It is, has a, a firm foundation upon Jesus. Now, by contrast, he lists for us in verse 49 another example, another house that, has, that looks exactly the same from the outside, but is built on a different foundation. Look at verse 49. But the one who hears and does not do them, right, who hears his word and does not listen, does not obey, <clears throat> is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. So instead of uh, putting this house upon any sort of firm foundation, this person mostly cares that the facade of the structure is visible, that they might enjoy the uh, the outside, uh, the, the exterior of the house, that the interior might have some sort of uh, resemblance of a sturdy and solid house. But they're not building for the long term. They're not worried about what it's built on. They just want to have a house. They just want to be in the same vicinity as everybody else. He says, when the stream broke against it, immediately it fell and the ruin of the house was great. So 
this group of people are now challenged to hear these words. There's a house that's well-built, that's on a firm foundation, and then there's a house that's not well-built. Uh, ex- from the exterior and interior side of it, it looks great, but its foundation is weak. It is not strong. It does not have an anchor. And the result is that it falls and the house is ruined. Now, for the group of people who are hearing this, the majority of these people would have been in uh, Jesus' audience. They would have been in, the, in, this, in this audience. They would have been people who would have participated in the building of a house or would have built a house themselves. They would have been a, 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 a group of people who have experience with this. And I will tell you, not one of them is going to be like, you know, I would really rather have the house with no foundation. They clearly see the wisdom in saying, well, it's a good idea to have the foundation because we, in the past, we've known people who have built a house with no foundation and the floods did come and their house washed away. They have experience with this. This isn't something that's just an out there uh, sort of example. Everybody would have been scoffing at the person who did not build upon the rock. Every single person in the audience would have heard this in such a way that they would have said, yeah, it makes total sense that that person is foolish to have built without a foundation. But many people still remain in the camp where they hear Jesus' words and do not obey him. James chapter 1, verse 22 tells us, Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. He says there's a lack of memory. He's not putting it into action. There's a man who's built a house on the ground without a foundation. Rather than, than building on the rock, they have decided to construct in such a way that is going to lead to destruction. The picture that Jesus is painting here, for those who would agree with him, who would say, it's absolutely foolish to build without a foundation, he's, pointing the, he's painting the picture of a person with no spiritual roots because Jesus' own teachings are ignored. They like the kind of uh, philosophical sayings of Jesus, but don't really like them applied to their own life. They like to be in the club with other people who follow Jesus, but they don't really like to figure out how they ought to live those things out themselves. The person that Jesus is is speaking to in that audience is the person who builds his life on what he thinks is best. The religious leaders, the scribes, and the Pharisees, of course, would be among this group. They follow their own principles. They go their own way. There are others that are called out throughout Jesus' ministry. A rich young ruler 
who has everything that he thinks he might need, but yet is someone whose house would be swept away when the storms of life come, when it's revealed that there is no foundation. This is why it is vitally important that we do things that are anchored in Christ, that are connected and rooted to him. Because you do not want to be someone who is deceiving yourself. You do not want to be someone who finds out after the fact that, oh, I had bad fruit. Inspect yourself. Examine yourself. Like we mentioned several weeks ago, uh, the same as the psalmist asked in Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart, and see if there would be anything that's wicked or evil or grievous in my heart, and lead me in the way everlasting. He knew that there was something going on, and that he needed the Lord to search his own heart. He asked the Lord repeatedly to do this, to accomplish this. Because if you don't do that, you're, you're kind of putting yourself in position, and we're all kind of, uh, you know, even the disciples and even us are in danger of doing Christian things without being connected to Jesus. We don't need to do Christian things. We don't need to do things that are on the outward participatory in, like, the Christian club. Right? Jesus doesn't have a Christian club. He has a family. If you're in the club, you're not in the family. We're connected to him. We're in a relationship with him. And if we do not have the spiritual roots, if we are not anchored and built upon the foundation, your house will be swept away. Many people have come to ruin as a result of building on a foundation that is weak. And if you choose to build your life on something other than Jesus, you will ultimately experience pain. You will ultimately experience anguish. This is what Jesus is saying here in his description. The ruin of that house was great. Your life will come crumbling apart. You will have an identity crisis. Who am I? If you're not anchored, if you don't have a foundation, an identity that is in him. He will not be swept away in the storm. He will not be washed away. He will guard and protect. He will be the firm foundation. These houses, they look the same on the outside. But at the foundation, they are different. We finish with these words of warning. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, where Paul writes in addressing those who are in the church, but who are tempted to continue on pursuing their identity as uh, rich people economically. He says this in verse 6, uh, or excuse me, chapter 6, verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, 
charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. So, two things. If you're rich, he doesn't say, don't be rich, right? That's not what he says. If you're rich, he doesn't say, give away all your money. He says, if you're rich, don't make your identity your riches. Don't even make it close. He says, if you are rich, don't be proud, don't be haughty, nor set your hopes on the uncertainty of riches. Don't think that your riches are going to do anything for you. Don't think that they're going to protect you. He says, but instead, on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So he says, don't try to be independent. Don't think that because you have riches that you are good. But instead, ignore those things as things that would take your attention. And instead, put your hope in God, who is the one who provides you with everything to enjoy. But then he says, okay, so reorient yourself, change your identity. As a practical matter, then he says, they are to do good, be rich in good works, right? Don't be rich in money, be rich in good works. Be generous and ready to share. So now put your money to work for God's kingdom, not for what you want. Don't worry about protecting yourself. Don't worry about your safety and security with your money. Figure out how to use your money for God's glory. And he says, deplete your earthly store, verse, and then verse 19, thus storing up treasure for themselves, right? So now he's talking about deplete your earthly, increase your heavenly store, storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future. So this heavenly treasure that's being stored up as the beginning of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So letting go of the thing that you believe to be truly life here and grabbing hold of what you believe to be truly life uh, in Jesus. Don't orient your life around riches and protection, provision for yourself. Use it for God's glory. Grasp hold of God. Anchor yourself in Jesus. Build a foundation there and uh, serve him faithfully and build up treasures in heaven. Essentially, he's restating what Jesus is saying here. Obey Jesus. Call him Lord and obey him. Orient your life around him. It is the words of Jesus himself who said that the foolish man would be the one who is rich, who feasts in luxury. The one who is carrying on and laughing and having a good time with everyone. The one who has the approval of the world. Jesus says that person is foolish. But by contrast, he says that the wise man is the one who is experiences poverty, who is hungry, who mourns and is persecuted. All for the sake of Christ. Not just because you made bad decisions and you're stupid, but because you are trying to follow Jesus. If the world hates you because of those things, that person says, Jesus says, that person is, is wise for exchanging the riches of this world to be identified with him, to call him Lord and to follow him and to obey him. 
Build your house upon the rock. Build upon a firm foundation, one that cannot be shaken, one that cannot come to ruin, and one that has been proven forever, faithful again and again, It's in the work of Christ that we trust. It's on him that we build our lives. We want to be able to call him Lord, Lord, and obey him. Not just be hearers of the word, but to be doers as well. And so it's my prayer that we would build collectively on that rock together. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful for the scriptures. We're grateful that you've given us these, this collection of your teachings so that we can understand how we ought to uh, know you and follow you and pursue you, but ultimately because they remind us that we are in you already. And so, Lord, would you teach us by your Holy Spirit how we can, um, can walk with you daily, that you would empower us to walk with you daily. Lord, would you help us as we work with intention to lay uh, and to build our house upon that firm foundation that you have given to us, to build our identity upon you. Help us to be faithful and patient to work together with your Holy Spirit to excavate all that, that extra junk and soil that could cause slippage, to remove the clay and uh, the peat and, and all of that uh, nasty things. Lord, we don't want to cut corners, but we want your Holy Spirit to burn away all of those things that are keeping us from, from knowing you and treasuring you deeply. We're thankful that you have accomplished that work already. That you've called us your own. That you've brought us into your family. And so Lord, we want to step forward into those works that you've prepared beforehand that we might walk in them. Help us to glorify you in all that we do. We love you. Amen.